The following message is titled, A Prophetical Christmas 2022. This message was given during the morning service on December 18, 2022 at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois by Pastor John Stevens. The primary passage is Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. In 2016, Alan Derrick and his son Tom, father and son, we're taking a walk on Sand Point, which is a beach in England. The son Tom picked up a waxy gray two and a half pound lump that was sitting, having washed up on shore. Gelatinous type of lump like this. Gray, slippery. And he said that it smelled exactly like walking into a very old, damp, dusty building. He had no idea what it was. Of course, in Chicago, we know that if there's gray, waxy, gelatinous lumps, you don't touch it under any reason whatsoever. But I guess they're different in Britain that way. Uh, so he turned to his dad and said to him, do you know what this is? And the dad said, yes, I do think I know what that's, that is, um, Tom. And if it's what I think it is, you need to guard that with your life. And he was right. It was what he thought it was. Brace for impact. It was whale vomit. Also known as ambergris. Technical name. It is a rare and costly ingredient in high-end perfumes. You can understand how it's rare. you got to wait till a whale vomits and it washes up on shore. You can't go fishing for it. The Derricks listed their lump of whale vomit, ambergris, on eBay. No word was found. It became a closed bidding, I guess, and we don't know whether they sold it or not. But when the market reasonable prices were going up, it had reached before the sale was closed or it was shut down. The price, the asking price had gotten up to $85,000 for that lump of whale vomit. What's the price of a human soul? Turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16 this morning. I think a little bit more than $85,000. I do believe most humans would have sold their soul to the devil to get that two and a half pounds of whale vomit so they could get eighty-five dollars to $90,000. What a strange and perverted world this is, isn't it? Guard the whale vomit with your life, but who cares about nurturing and caring for one's own soul? Christ said the priority is our soul. The soul is obviously your mind, as I've taught before, showing from scriptures. Verse 24 of Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. Uh, conversion starts with a desire, a wish for conversion. And to come after means to submit under his lordship, denying self as repentance. And of course, then the results are taking up the cross and follow me. I've had some people over the years say, why is that all mixed together? Because it sounds like uh, Christ is saying you have to take up a cross and follow him in order to be saved. That's work salvation. The Lord and the Bible, the New Testament, always intertwines salvation and sanctification. Salvation is always transformational. 
You can't have one with the other without the other. When you're saved by grace and faith alone, it produces sanctification. You can't have sanctification without salvation. You can't have salvation if there's no sanctification. Sanctification doesn't save. It simply is an automatic result of the God of the universe, the Holy Spirit living inside of us after conversion. He doesn't come and live in us to do nothing. So following and cross-bearing, suffering and following, suffering and discipleship, cross-bearing and following in verse 24 are an automatic result of hunger for Christ, turning to him, denying self, and being saved. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. You can't save your life, we know that. In verse 25, losing it there means for eternity's sake. But whoever loses his life, earthly-wise, suffering for Christ, cross-bearing, connection of losing his life is connected to verse 24, take up the cross. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, an automatic result of suffering, as we'll see again tonight in the sermon, as we're looking at 1 Peter 1.7, that the proof of one's faith is joy while suffering. So whoever loses his life, and notice, not just any martyrdom, not just any suffering, but for my sake, it's always suffering for Christ, will find it for eternity. You lose your physical life, you find it for eternity. So this is how verse 25 reads. Whoever wishes to save his life um, by getting his own salvation or as a professed believer, avoiding suffering, is going to lose it for eternity. But whoever loses his life, suffering, possibly dying for my sake, will find that his soul is saved for eternity. And here comes verse 26, which people don't really hold to. They'd rather have... Uh, found some whale vomit than they would uh, verse 26 but what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what will a man give in exchange for his soul the implication of the question is it's priceless absolutely priceless so this priceless soul that we have inside of our, us which is certainly can't be bought with a price but yet has been corrupted greatly by sin is something that no human can pay enough money for or do good to get saved. It's impossible. And that's why the Father gave his Son for mankind, which Christmas is about, when humans have been so corrupted by their sin and their souls deserve hell, only God can intervene. Matthew chapter 1, of course, is that story of the intervention. Just to quickly look at a few verses, Matthew 1 The world does not understand any of this whatsoever. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, of course, the birth of Jesus, as follows in verse 18, Joseph, her husband, didn't know what to do in verse 19. And when he, Joseph, had considered this in verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who had been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So he didn't know whether to divorce her from a Jewish divorce point of view, which does not occur today, by the way. The, the Jewish divorce does not exist today, so we can't use a Jewish setting to understand any legitimacy or lack thereof for divorce because that's a divorce during the betrothal, the engagement period, and we don't have divorce during an engagement period if it breaks up. So it's unique to New Testament Jewish times. But anyways, he didn't know whether to divorce her or put her away privately. He's completely confused on what to do because she's pregnant. 
And so the angel says in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Uh, incredibly spontaneous generation of life by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. What a miracle. Why? Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the point of Curias uh, Jesus Christas, Lord Jesus Christ. He is Jesus. He is Jesus the human, and he is Christos, divine Messiah, to save people from their sins. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. Jews today, especially a whole movement in New York City, currently they're looking for the Messiah, but it's a political figure they want. Uh, they don't have any concept whatsoever or accept any idea that it is God becoming man to die for our sins because Jews, after 2,000 years, believe they're good people and going to heaven based on good works like every other false religion. You don't need saving from their sins if they're good people. What do we need salvation for, right? Saved from their sins is not saying that they're saved so that they never sin again. It's being saved from their sins penalty, as Paul wrote in Romans 3 and other passages. The penalty, the wages of sin, is eternal death. Verse 22, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This is a drastic intervention into human affairs. The only way to get to heaven and to be saved when we're so corrupted by our sin is this way. And yet man is so corrupted, he ignores the message of Christmas, the true message at Christmas, and exchanges it for other things. And it always comes basically down to possessions and things, doesn't it? That's the debased default setting for all humans. Why do so many people want to move to the United States? Do they really believe in democracy and like our form of government? Well, there are some that do. They want to flee persecution. But you look, for instance, at Egyptians who live in certainly some relative degree of freedom in Egypt today, and how the vast majority of them want to move to the United States, and that same majority wants the United States destroyed. That's a complete contradiction of terms. Why do they want to come here? Money, better life, things. This is why it is. This is what man is basically after. So, I don't think there's a story that could show us how messed up the condition of humanity is in that ambergris story. I really don't. What perverted priorities humans have today that you'd pay $85,000 for a lump of whale vomit in order to make high-end perfume? It's astounding to me. Humans are so evil, even in their priorities. Man sins by doing wrong. Man sins, he sins by thinking wrong. He sins by wanting wrong. He sins by planning wrong. He sins by not doing right. He sins by not believing the Bible. He sins by worshiping himself. He sins by having wicked priorities. He sins by blaspheming Christ or ignoring him completely, especially at Christmas. He sins by loving lust and error. He sins by mocking truth. And he sins by worshiping whale vomit or whatever else their evil hearts will yield to. The volume of human sin is astronomical. I've told you many times before that I've... Uh, stood at grave sites over the years, and you know it if you've been at my funerals, and I'll ask people if they remember their great-great-grandfather, and none of them do, and I've 
mentioned to them why death is, is, is the enemy that stalks all of us. It's only a matter of time before the tiger of death strikes home and kills us. And uh, I'll raise the issue of sin in the sermons at funerals or at the graveside, that uh, sin causes death. And I just get looks back so many times for unbelievers who are darkened, not looks of horror, just looks of inconsequence. It just doesn't matter. And that's because every thought, word, deed, intention, emotion, and desire of every human is constantly geared towards evil. Man is wicked because he's given over from birth to evil in his mind. Look at Ephesians 5. Paul itemizes the absolute dilemma of humanity, which man does not talk about or care about. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm working my way eventually to our series texts in Isaiah 9, but we look at this horrible contrast between God, Emmanuel, coming to be with us. Nobody invited Jesus to come to earth. Man wasn't looking for a savior. God did it unconditionally anyways. Um, He wasn't invited. There was nobody that ever called out to God in heaven and said, we need a savior, send a Messiah, please. Other than the godly Jews of the Old Testament, of course. But in Ephesians 5, we understand why this is the case, because man is so corrupt. This is one of the great um, descriptions of the depravity of every human. And the warning starts off at the beginning towards believers in Ephesians 5, verse 1. The imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. So we're to imitate God. That's an astounding thing. How could you possibly imitate God in your own power? You can't. The only way you can imitate God is if he lives within you and is energizing us with his power. And he doesn't live within us unless we're saved. And the first way, the first of the nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and the first way is walk. To walk means to live. It's a Pauline term. It refers to living the Christian life. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. So to imitate God, essentially, is to walk in love. And of course, John points this out, the defining difference between a fake believer and a true believer. John points out in 1 John 4 when he's confronting false versus true conversion is love. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you, verse 2, and gave himself up for us. There it is. That's, that is Christmas. Christ loved us by giving himself up for us. He was born to die and offering in a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Sacrifice for what? For sin. And this is supposed to transform us. Because we are saved from our sins and we've been transformed, there is a responsibility commensurate that is laid upon us in verse 3. And this is a description of unsaved man. We're not to be like them. And how is it marked in verse 3? But immorality, impurity, or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. We're to be transformed. Immorality and impurity are two words that are talked about. Paul talked about these three terms in the first two in Ephesians 4 earlier. He repeats that here. And immorality and impurity have sexual connotations. And greed, certainly we all know what greed is, a love of money and things. It's not even to be named among us. Verse 4, and there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. This is transformational. For this you know with certainty. And then he talks about 
true conversion versus false, false conversion. That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater is an idolater. That's a state of being. He's an immoral idolater, an impure idolater, a covetous idolater. Third time he's mentioned that triad, by the way. Go back to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 19. Again, describing, as I just mentioned, the unbelievers in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 19. And they become callous. Who's, who's callous? All humans. This is why they don't listen to the, to the gospel. And they've given themselves over. It's falling away. It's decadentia in the Latin, as I've shared with you many times. To give themselves over, to fall into continuously. Sensuality, impurity, and greed. These are the marks. So they're mentioned in verse 19 of chapter 4. He mentions them in chapter 5. Go back to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 3. And then he mentions them again in verse 5. And this is definitive. What this tells us is that a person who is given over to immorality, impurity, and covetousness, in verse 5, greed, this type of person is an idolater, a worship of evil, a worshiper of evil. Three times then, chapter 4, verse 19, chapter 5, verse 3, chapter 5, verse 5, these three terms are used. This is the heart, the essence of an unbeliever. An essence of an unbeliever is they're given over to these things. And such a person, which unbelievers are, have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No one who is known as this. It doesn't mean that a believer can't do those three things. In fact, those four things, if we add idolatry, John told believers to flee idolatry. It was a command. So if he's telling believers to flee idolatry, that means you have the potential for doing it. But we are to repent of these things quickly. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, what things? The things just mentioned. Basically, the triad of evil in verses 3 and 5. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's all of us before conversion. There's absolutely no hope for us if God does not intervene. So he says, don't be fellowshippers with them. This reminds us again of the partaking issue that is mentioned by Peter in 2 Peter 1. He brings that up that we're partakers of the Holy Spirit. As true believers in 2 Peter 1, we're to be holy. And we're holy, he says, the foundation of that in 2 Peter 1 is that we're partakers or fellowshippers with the Holy Spirit. That's what transforms us. And so he says, Paul says here, parallel to that idea, that if we're fellowshippers with the Holy Spirit, as Peter said, and that transforms us into holiness, then we better not be fellowshipping with evil in verse 7. With them, unbelievers. We're not to have fellowship with unbelievers. They're not to be our best friends. Our best friends are to be in the body of Christ. And here's why again, verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, now you are light in the Lord. That was, as John 1 said, and the Apostle John said, in unity with Paul here in chapter 5 and Peter in 2 Peter 1, John talks about the light piercing the darkness. And we are light. That means we're walking in holiness. And uh, Ryan was talking about this in his excellent devotion from John 1, light and life. And we're to walk as children of light. And then he gives the fruit of the light in verse 9. It consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. And that we're trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And then he comes back to darkness in verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful. They're disgraceful. Unbelievers are disgraceful. And eventually everything will be judged in verse 13. All things become visible when exposed by the light. We're to be different. And in kind of a 
mystical statement in verse 14, awake sleeper and arise from the dead. He's now calling out to all those who claim to be believers but aren't. Or maybe just calling out to all who are outright unbelievers and have never accepted the Christian message. Awaking from sleep. That is such an incredible statement because it is the mark of an unbeliever to be asleep to righteousness, goodness, and truth in verse 9. They're sound asleep spiritually. They have no conviction. They love their evil. And so Christmas is the piercing of darkness by the light of Christ. And it's astounding to watch our world, is it not? Try to figure out how to operate with a Christ mass, Christ worship holiday, Christmas mass. You know what a mass is in Catholicism, right? It's worship service. Trying to figure out how to use that term, but no comprehension whatsoever. It's impossible for man to understand this. It's impossible for man because of verse 14. He's dead. He can't save himself. He can't understand the holiday. He's wicked. No understanding whatsoever. And so everything, as I said earlier, gets debased down to the default setting for a depraved unbeliever. It basically gets put down to shopping and buying stuff, especially in a decadent culture. That's everything we see on TV, isn't it? And in the internet. Shopping and buying things, right? Where else can you go but to give stuff? Now, giving is a wonderful way to show love for us as believers. In fact, we're commanded to do that. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, that it's wrong to give at Christmas. That's ridiculous. We do that because Christ is given to us. In fact, in Luke 6, if you go back there, Luke chapter 6, we're actually commanded to be givers. So my point is not that it's wrong for unsaved man to give gifts. That's not inherently wrong. It's when it becomes the idol it is. When that's all that Christmas is. Luke 6, Christ actually gives us a theology of love and giving. In verse 27, For I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. So we're to unconditionally love those who hate us, who are our enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Luke 6, 28. Verse 29, whoever hits you on a cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. That's not a theology for uh, renouncing you know, justice and calling the police, okay? The point of Christ here is not, uh, if you have a crime committed against you, then you don't, shouldn't call the police. I've read commentaries on this. That's ridiculous. So social justice comes in on this issue in verse 29c. We're to disband the police and we're to disband all the prisons because of what Jesus says in verse 29. Is that really his point? You think he decided to talk about incarceration that never existed on the planet anyways other than in the Roman Empire? It's ridiculous. The point here is, even when you're abused, you give. Because hateful people are going to do bad things to you. Those that hate you in verse 27 are going to do bad things to you in verse 29. We're to be known as lovers. And love shows out, just like in John 3.16, here in verse 30. Give to everyone who asks you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love, verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners, sinners here in context would refer to unbelievers, love those who love them. But if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners, sinners do the same. She goes and repeats the issue that we read in verse 27 and verse 35. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. And then go down to verse 38. Give it, and it will be given to you. So yes, giving is inherently Christian. It is a wonderful thing when we give to each other at Christmas. 
and show love that way. That's what we're called to do. Christ calls us to. But the problem for unsaved mankind is not the giving. It's when the giving of gifts and shopping is all that is offered at Christmas. It exposes the evil and destitute heart of greed. On the news last night, a man said, um, we, and he was referring to his organization, which takes toys and gifts to needy children, which by itself is, is a wonderful thing, but uh, we need to think that through a little bit when it comes from the unsaved. He said, we give gifts to the needy to show them that Christmas is about giving. That's a direct quote. We give gifts to the needy to show them that Christmas is about getting, giving. That is completely backwards. How do you teach your child to give? By constantly giving him stuff? Or do you teach him to give to others? They don't understand. They don't make sense at all. All that they can do is give stuff. So these kids that are needy in the inner city have this pile of stuff. And one little kid says, I love the cars and the gifts that I get. He didn't learn anything about giving to others. He learned that this is entitlement time. This is when the idolatry of commercialism takes place and stuff is just dumped on us. Christmas then, which is about Christ giving to us and we as believers sacrificially giving to others, has been turned into nothing but a greed fest. Half off on Amazon, buy it now. Christmas is not about for the world the giving of gifts, but the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Only after Christ is in our lives can we possibly do chapter 6 of Luke. And then we demonstrate Christ's giving by giving to others. Do you see here in this text, in Luke 6, 30 to 38, where it says, Stand there and receive tons of gifts as a demonstration to the world that you're a giver. No, it's always about giving to others, which is the Christ-like aspect of love. So this is the world that Christ has come into and has not changed whatsoever. And only one who's greater and more powerful and perfectly holy, unlike evil mankind, only Christ could provide a way out to all humans who are drowning, as I would put it, in their own whale vomit sin. Grasping that chunk of gelatinous material, I've just become rich. Ignoring the condition of one's soul. I, 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 for one, am still perplexed at Christmas that the Lord Jesus would even bother. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Even the Jews who had the best chance of receiving a Messiah because they're the ones that supposedly were looking for the Messiah rejected him. Knowing that the world was so wicked that he would bother to come and pierce the darkness. And then... I would have done it different. How would I have done it arrogantly? I would have come from heaven and just instantly been hanging on the cross. Nothing before that because I'd want to be here as little as possible. And let's just get it done. Like the man who didn't want to go to the birthday party and he just wished it was over so that it would come so that it would be over. That's what I would have done. I would have just burst on the scene on a cross. Let's get this done. For Christ to take the full force of living here in this wicked world, starting at conception all the way up to 33 years of age, incredible love.
incredible. And that's Isaiah 9, which I never finish because I'm always reviewing. Isaiah chapter 9. But I figure since I do it once a year, it's always new every single time all over again. The light of the first prophetical Christmas. This is the light piercing the darkness. Isaiah 9. And currently in the series, we're down in verse 6, but probably won't get there today because I had other things in the introduction I wanted to talk about. But let's just be reminded that this is incredible that God would do this for the likes of us. Just absolutely incredible. And not just zap on the cross, die, okay, it's done, I go to heaven. Even after he rose from the dead, he stuck around for days before he ascended. Always thinking about others. Caring to be with us. Wanting us with him in heaven one day. Hmm. Verse 1, But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. That's Israel. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious on the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So verse 1 starts off with the darkest hour for Israel. This is the contempt of Israel and rejecting Christ, both in Isaiah's day all the way through to Christ's birth. This is a recap. The tribes, Galilee mentioned certainly in verse 1, weren't wanting a Messiah. The Lord knew this all the way back in Isaiah's day. This was no situation that surprised him. In Isaiah's day, Israel was already apostate. And when you're apostate, you can't get converted. So the apostasy just continued right up for hundreds of years into the time when Christ came. And it says, he shall make it glorious. He shall make glory. The it is not in the Hebrew. He shall make glory. It is the glory of God appearing in Galilee. In a land that is under judgment and apostasy. Gloomy. Dark. So Isaiah is connecting the impending invasion of northern Galilee by the Assyrians. The context here. And New Testament times connected to that in one inspired prophetical jump in this text. And by the stroke of a pen, he's connecting the context of their being defeated by Assyria with the fact that they're morally defeated and will require the invasion of their land by Christ. Zebulun and Naphtali in verse 1 are two of the most northern tribes and represented northern Galilee, west of the Jordan. They were the first to be invaded by the Assyrians. And under Gentile rule in the Gospel times, this area was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. So he's drawing the term from the future into the text prophetically here in verse 1. This is a description of the future area of ministry of Christ at his first coming, where great light would come. And then in verse 2, the people who walk in darkness, exactly the same as John 1. It never changes. Why is it that apostasy never changes? Why do people who claim to be God's people in the Old Testament or in the church today, why do they continue to live in darkness? Because they're evil. They're false believers. They will always walk in darkness. John, at the end of the New Testament, in John, 1 John chapter 1, says this is the defining mark of a fake believer, one who doesn't fellowship with the light but walks in darkness. Dark walkers are unbelievers whether inside the nation of Israel, here, or in the New Testament church. 
And the light pierces the darkness in verse 2. This reads just like John chapter 1. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. It doesn't say they'll be converted. Very few were converted when Christ came, but the light shines. The light's still shining today, folks. It's through the word of God. The spirit of God is still on the planet. The church still exists. This is our hope. We continue to shine light at our workplace among our family that are dark walkers. This is a command. If Jesus pierced the darkness, knowing that Israel would reject him, and they did, by and large, then we should pierce the darkness, witnessing, taking a stand, walking in light, living light before the lost. This is a great opportunity we have at Christmas time. And just like in Ephesians 5, walk in verse 2 refers to the same path of living one's life. They walk or live, just like Paul used the term in Ephesians 5 that we just saw. Here, the term walking in darkness means that's their, that's their path. This is a defining mark of an unbeliever. Very plain, whether Old Testament or New Testament. Walking in darkness refers to unbelievers. And darkness refers to moral darkness. Blind, cannot possibly see the light. Verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. And of course, the personal pronoun you and yours are all initial capitalized because correctly they interpreted the Hebrew to refer to Christ, the Messiah. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So the yous and years are referring to the Messiah. Only he can change a human. Only he could change Israel. He's changed humanity on the first coming to save people from every tongue, every nation, every land. And he will then transform and save Israel during the tribulation at the end of it. Christ has to, and only Christ can save humanity. And only Christ can save Israel. Israel cannot be revived without Christ. So this is a referral in verse 3 to the fact that he's going to come back and only God through Christ can do this in verse 3. Restore the nation. Multiplying the nation. So God's not done with Israel yet. This is foundational to why we are not reformed. This gets to the root of reformed heresy. Why we can't fellowship with reformed churches. Because of the promises of the restoration of Israel so that the throne of David will be restored. How can you abandon a promise like verse 3? You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. Reformers believe God's done with Israel. So these promises were never fulfilled. God breaks his word. There are two people that God has saved out of darkness. Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New church is alluded to at various times in the Old Testament that it would be coming a mystery and that God would reach out to the Gentiles. It's alluded here in verse 1, Galilee of the Gentiles. So God was faithful in bringing the church to bow before the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to save Gentile believers, but he's unfaithful in restoring the other people that he had in the Old Testament, Israel. He just abandoned them and let them go. How could anyone believe that? When there's so many promises of the restoration of Israel, it stymies me how anyone can be reformed. He says right here, they will be glad in your presence. Who's the they? The people in verse 2, Israelites. This is the future. There was no restoration or revival in the Old Testament. This has to be future still. It's amazing. Verse 4, the joy that captures them in verse 3 brings an amazing reaction in verse 4. Their liberation, for you will break the yoke of their burden 
Only Jesus can break that yoke. He didn't break the yoke when he first came. Israel stayed in darkness. Titus came through and sacked the temple and destroyed everything. So breaking the yoke of their burden, this is referring to enslavement to foreign powers and a staff on their shoulders, a rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. What we have here is at the second coming of Christ, bring great liberation for Israel, a lifting of a horrific burden that is on Israel of it being conquered. Israel is likened to a beast of burden or a slave, and only Christ can do that. That's why we believe in a literal rapture, tribulation, second coming. Christ has to come like he did the first time, only to restore Israel. The first time was to offer salvation to everyone, Jew and Gentile. The Jews abandoned Christ and apostatized against him and renounced him and murdered him on the cross. So he went to the Gentiles through the apostles. First time was the offer of salvation. Now this is the restoration of the nation of Israel. All millennialists don't believe any of this. They have to spiritualize all this. We believe in the literal translation of the Bible. This is plain. Only Christ can alleviate the burden and the oppression of Israel. Just as Gideon with 300 men defeated the vast forces of Midian. That was a literal battle where the Israelites were outnumbered and Gideon was used. The battle of Midian is referring to that battle in verse 4. And just as God worked through an inept and cowardly leader like Gideon, Christ will come back and he will pierce the darkness of this entire world and defeat the Antichrist and the forces of hell and restore, land on the Mount of Olives and restore literally the kingdom. This is why we're not reformed. This is why we believe in the historical, grammatical understanding of the scriptures. And this is why I could never be reformed. I'd have to abandon my interpretive grid and ignore, blindly and willfully ignore all such passages. To partake of Reformed theology in this regard is to partake of heresy. You can't deny the second coming and still be a growing Christian. How is that possible? This is the hope of the believer. And then verse 5. For every Buddha, the Buddha warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning. Fuel for the fire. This is liberation of Israel politically, morally. All implements of war will one day end at Christ's second coming. When has that ever happened on the planet? Putin rolls out his new nuclear missile hypersonic thing every week. He's repositioned his nuclear bombers so that they can't be hit by Ukrainian drones. Romania is gearing up its war machine to stand with Ukraine. They have massive factories that ship arms all over the world. Vietnam is sitting down with the U.S. There's an irony there. Vietnam, a communist nation, is afraid of the aggressions of China. And Vietnam has now, just this past week, sat down with arms company leaders from the United States. They want to now buy arms from the U.S. When have the tools of war been destroyed in this planet? Never. This is only when the Lord comes at the Battle of Armageddon here in verse 5. Will all the weapons of war be destroyed? We believe that the battle of Armageddon is coming at the end of the tribulation. And why is all this the case? Who did all of this? Who will do all of this? Who came in the Galilee of the Gentiles? Future in verse 1, but past for us now in the Gospels. Who was this that came in the Galilee of the Gentiles? The end of verse 1. Who is this that breaks the yoke in verse 4? The child. In verse 6. 4 is a connective, a logical connective. 
It's telling us who is causing all this to take place. For a child would be born to us. Four connects everything here. Where it says in verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. And then verse 4, the logical Hebrew connective, for you will break the yoke is the you of verse 3. This is Jesus. So this is the first coming. This is Christmas in verse 6. The same Jesus who's born to us is the only one that will restore Israel in verses 1 to 5. That child, literally, in verse 6, is the one who stops the battle of Armageddon in verse 5. That child. He didn't do it at the first coming. But he literally came at the first coming. So that one child has to be the one, because it says four, verse 6, a child, who will do all this restoration politically to Israel in verses 1 to 5. That child who offered himself on the cross, who was born to die. A son who was given to us. Given to us, Israelites first and then to Gentiles. Born to us, a son given to us. This is an unconditional gift of salvation. And he will one day literally establish his government. The government of Israel will rest on his shoulders in verse 6. That is literal, requires literal fulfillment. If I believe a child was literally born in verse 6, I have to accept that the government isn't spiritualized and representing the church. As millennials and reformers believe. Literal birth in verse 6 equals literal government. Since his government was not established, he came to die on the cross, he has to return a second time to establish the literal government. And it will rest on his shoulders and he will restore Israel. What a God. That's Christmas. So when you see the stores are packed and they're left open late and a guy's walking along the beach and picks up Amber Gris and he's just made his day. We can see a world has no clue what Christmas is. We should expect that. We can't figure it out. We went up to Wisconsin on our way up there, we stopped in an oasis. I was in a bathroom there, and they were playing over the bathroom speakers in the oasis, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and I thought, wow, is that amazing that even any Christmas hymns are even still played, right? And I just stood there listening. What, what an irony. In the middle of an oasis, 2,000 years later, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and everyone's just doing their thing in the bathroom that they do and washing their hands and not realizing that that music is playing the intervention of God into mankind and not even seeing it. How could they not? I stood there and I was like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. And I look around, combing hair, washing hands, blowing in the breeze, walking out. Absolutely nothing. That takes us back to Ephesians 5. We're not to be like that. We're to be imitators of God because he intervened in our souls and he saved us. Thank you, Father, so much for Christmas. Forgive us when we get used to it. Forgive us, Lord, when we at times could get overwhelmed by the greed of the holiday. Help us, dear Lord, to give to others at Christmas, family, friends, employees, employers, to give generously, sacrificially, as a demonstration of your giving to us. But how sad it is, Lord, when we see unbelievers obsessed with giving gifts apart from receiving the gift of salvation. It just rings hollow, Lord. Without Christ, our giving means nothing. 
It just gets perverted into greed and materialism and obsession with things. For us as believers, we give things as a demonstration of our love for others and our love for you. You've blessed us with so much, we give to others that way. But the lost know nothing of this, dear Lord. How sad. May this be the week that some dark soul becomes enlightened because of our witness. May we look passionately, Lord, for an opportunity to evangelize and preach the light, knowing that most likely it will be rejected, but you came, Lord, and pierced the darkness in Israel in John 1 and Isaiah 9, 1. You pierced the darkness knowing that you would not be received. Help us to mimic that divine attribute, sharing Christ, knowing most likely you will not be received. And may we, like the remnant of Israel, be pleasantly surprised this week that maybe there is a searching soul that we knew nothing about. And we give witness, not believing the person will be saved, and they turn to you and are saved. How can they be saved if there's no preacher? How can they be saved if there's no one who has the light willing to offer that to others? In fact, this is the greatest gift we can give to the lost is a message of the gospel. It might be so easy as taking a Christmas track off the track rack, Lord, and saying, this is what Christmas is all about. Would you please read this? And then praying for that person. How hard is that? To share the miracle of Christmas through a little pamphlet. Help us, Lord. Revive us so that we will be passionate about evangelism. Love the lost. Light bearing among them and show them the difference that Christ makes. Will you transform our lives, every last one of us who are saved, so that we are not conformed to their ways and show a better way than they're living? Help us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for Christmas in your name. Amen.